0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Jacob, Griffin, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Roger the Jolly, Hartman, Gingrich, Lisa, Kevin, Brock, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Brian, Lancelot, Schmarls, Madame Anita, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, Jonathan, the Admiral Binbow, Misfit, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Ash, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, James, Brock, Four-Eyed Sloth, Artemis Killmeister, The Sextant, Randy Savage, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we discussed the uprising of Malagasy peoples that killed every pirate on St. Mary's Island. The uprising that put an end to the pirate utopia, later dubbed Libertalia. That event was going to change the entire course of pirate history, but it was going to take a while for the pirates themselves to figure that out. Do you remember that first really big Bitcoin boom a few years back when it really exploded in value and everybody started buying up cryptocurrency? A lot of people bought in when it was close to the height. But then Bitcoin crashed. Or maybe think back to school when everyone was getting into some really dumb fad. For me I'm thinking about bleached tips or you know jinko jeans something like that. The kind of thing that it took you forever to convince your parents to let you join in on, but as soon as you did, it wasn't cool anymore. Well, something similar was happening in the world of the pirates. Ships were returning from the east, all of those pirate-adjacent types we were talking about. They were arriving in Providence or New York, and they had wild tales of beautiful Madagascar and beautiful Malagasy women and the bountiful riches of the east. Men were lining up to sign up with any ship that was headed east, especially the less reputable privateers out of New York. And some of those ships did make it round the Cape. They made it to the Indian Ocean, but when they arrived, it wasn't the world they had been promised. The pirate utopia they had been led to believe in didn't exist, if it had ever really been there at all. But there wasn't any port friendly to those pirates, nowhere they could stop and resupply and rest. So most of those prospective pirates, they bought a few slaves and returned to the Americas, where they made a little bit of money and then disbanded. Although no small amount either sank or were captured and killed outright. But for those pirates already active in the Indian Ocean when everything started to fall apart well, they had one last chance to make good and get out. This is Episode 270, Cutlass Culliford. Probably the best place to begin today's story would be in the spring of 1698. That's when a captain, who had been in the employ of the East India Company, but then had gone missing for 11 months and was presumed dead, that captain resurfaced in Bombay. His name was William Willock, and William Willock had quite a tale to tell. He'd been taken prisoner eleven long months earlier, and then held captive aboard none other than the Mocha Frigate. He'd served, or been forced to serve, a band of murderous pirates. And we're going to tell his story, much of it today, but that's not where we're going to begin. Instead, I'd like to take us back to before everything we talked about last time, about a year before the massacre on St. Mary's Island, right after the Charming Mary had been commandeered by John Ireland. You'll recall that John Ireland was voted in as quartermaster, but another man was voted in as captain. Now, he's not important. You don't need to remember his name. It was Richard Bobbington, but he's about to die and disappear. It was almost one of Charming Mary's first stops. They made a foray into the Persian Gulf, and he disappeared. They elected another man, Joseph Skinner, as their captain, but for our purposes, Skinner was also pretty much just a stuffed shirt. It's John Ireland that I want to keep our focus on. Now, around this time we lose track of the Charming Mary for a while, but they resurface in the record when they enter the Malacca Strait, That's the passage between modern-day Malaysia and the Indonesian island of Sumatra, an excellent place for a little bit of piracy. But it was here, in the Malacca Strait, that Charming Mary met the Mocha. Captain Ralph Stout and Quartermaster Robert Culliford. And it's a little funny here. The Charming Mary had a captain we don't really need to worry about, and a quartermaster who's extraordinarily important. It's the same thing with the Mocha frigate. Richard Zacks characterizes Ralph Stout as little more than a pilot, while Culliford is the quartermaster leading the men. But when they met up, those two ships joined in a parley. They weren't friends by any means, but some of the men did know each other, a few of them from Libertalia, which, I know, it's a literary anachronism, but it's a phrase I like to use. Some met on Henry Avery's voyage back in 1695, and a few, including James Kelly, went as far back as the Pacific Adventures almost twenty years earlier. The two ships decided it would be in their mutual best interest to sail in consort as a fleet of two. Between them, of course, the mocha was bigger and stronger and therefore the senior of the two ships, Not to mention she was in much better shape, but while the Mocha was a very capable vessel, adding that second ship to the fleet gave all the pirates all kinds of opportunities. New possibilities. Possibilities that it would take them a while to capitalize on, however. They sailed east deeper into indonesia looking for any ships to capture but mostly they just kind of bounced around for a couple of months nobody knew really where they were or where they were going in situations like this and we saw a very similar one on the second pacific adventure the pirates were looking specifically for maps for you know charts to tell them where they were and what the currents and shores were like around them but then on the 14th of january 1697 The little fleet spotted a small set of sails on the horizon, and the pirates hatched a plan. In this plan, the Mocha would hoist an English standard, while the charming Mary would fly a Muslim flag. Now this was either an amazing coincidence or some pretty spectacular planning. See, the closest port was a Dutch port, and that very morning, two ships that bore a striking resemblance to that pattern a large ship flying an East India Company flag and a smaller, flying a Mughal flag, they'd just departed. The pirates have to have seen those ships, right, and decided to impersonate them, because it worked out perfectly, or maybe they just were amazingly lucky. See, that set of sails that they had spied on the horizon belonged to a coastal skimmer called the Satisfaction, a ship belonging to the company under a Captain William Willock. "'Willock examined the two ships that were coming up on him "'and saw a familiar pair of flags. "'When he lowered his spyglass, he wasn't worried at all. "'They were friendlies, after all, "'ships he'd been in the harbor with. "'So Captain Willock put in for the night. "'He anchored just off the coast of a nearby island. "'And all through the night, "'those two sets of sails got closer and closer and closer.' But, of course, there was nothing to worry about here. He knew these ships. He knew their captains. He'd probably been drinking with them. But when the sun rose, he realized that those two ships had parted. They were now moving in on both sides of the satisfaction, pinning her in a crossfire. Captain Willock now realized that these were not, in fact, the friendly ships he believed them to have been. And were we to listen to Captain Willock, Quote, the satisfaction put up a big fight, killing three of the pirates and losing four killed and ten wounded out of her little crew of forty before she surrendered. Her mainmast was shot down and her hull badly pierced before she gave in. End quote. And that actually might be true. He was, after all, the captain of an East India Company ship and it was their duty to put up a fight, but he was also in an unwinnable situation. I find it more likely that he was just lying here. Richard Zacks says, quote, they captured the satisfaction without firing a shot, End quote. And this is where the account given by Captain William Willock of his time aboard the Mocha frigate begins when he was captured by the pirates. Now, this account is one of the best we have of a real experience on board a pirate ship and we could spend whole episodes on the subject of what that life was really like, and eventually we will utilize Willock's memoir. But for now, I don't want to waste too much time talking about the day-to-day. I'd like to keep the narrative moving. Willock tells us that the pirates plundered his ship of all of her cargo, mostly just some sugar, and then the pirates took the foodstuffs and the anchor and the sails. Now, this wasn't a rich prize. It was a small coastal skimmer, but... When I said that the pirates were looking for maps, they found none, but they did find Captain William Willock. Robert Culliford took him on board the Mocha Frigate to serve as her navigator. Now, what they did with the rest of the crew, I don't know. They were probably set free. They had a couple of excellent opportunities to do so in the following couple of weeks, and, you know, if they'd been killed, I imagine Captain Willock probably would have mentioned that in his account. Then the carpenter on board the mocha cut a hole in the hull of the Satisfaction and let her sink. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now that the fleet was one navigator richer... They went to a nearby smuggler's den, where they sold their sugar and bought some water and wine and goats. But now they were feeling good. They had everything they needed to really get under way. The two ships sailed across the Bay of Bengal, toward the southern Cape of India. On the 6th of February, 1697, the Mocha and the Charming Mary put in at a small little alcove on the coast of mainland India, where they were going to rest for the night. It was a good place to stop, to collect wood and water, before they rounded the cape and headed out into the open Indian Ocean. But during the night, the lookouts spotted three large ships that passed them by. Now, the pirates were well hidden, so they weren't seen, and that gave them an opportunity and a decision to make. Now, it's becoming clearer and clearer, even through the primary sources, that the real leader here is Robert Culliford, For all of the captains they had, for John Ireland on the Mary and James Kelly on the Mocha, all of the notable pirates who are about to become famous, it was Robert Culliford who was really in charge. You know, as in charge as any pirate ever was. It was still an anarchist democracy on the open ocean, but Culliford was the one that everyone looked to for leadership, for guidance. And it was Culliford, not the captain that roused the men and called them to a vote. Should they attack these three large, unsuspecting vessels? The crews deliberated and then responded with a resounding eye. They set to work getting their ships underway. They were immediately stalled by a complete lack of wind. Their prey, those three ships, they had the wind, but the pirates were stuck in a cove until morning. But when their sails finally caught a breeze, the pirates had the advantage. Their ships were much lighter and much faster. When the pirates got close enough to spy their ships through a glass, Culliford noted that they were Portuguese, so he ordered that each ship raise French flags. Now, that wasn't exactly going to put the Portuguese at ease, but Portugal and France were mostly friendly in the Indian Ocean, Those French flags ensured that they wouldn't run hard, but it also ensured that they wouldn't become too suspicious. So the chase was on, but the Portuguese didn't yet know it. All five ships sailed all throughout the 7th and overnight into the 8th of February. And the pirates played it off. You know, they had faster ships. They weren't chasing anybody. That's just the way the winds were blowing. Everyone on deck seemed to be hard at work and not, you know, sharpening their swords. And for the Portuguese, it would have been silly to worry. I mean, look at this frigate. It was a fine, fine ship. No pirate anywhere in the world sailed anything that nice. Clearly, they were honest French sailors on a bit of business. Probably not anything the Portuguese wanted to get their noses into. So, by about dawn of the 8th of February, the pirates were closing in. Willock tells us, quote, The small pirate, he means the charming Mary, sailed best, and with a small breeze came up with them and fired her broadsides in, with a volley or two of small arms, which the Portuguese answered as well as they could. End quote. Now, keep in mind, these Portuguese ships were big. They were merchant ships, you know, not ships of the line, not warships, but kind of an upgraded version of a galleon. They had a ton of space for men and cargo, but they also carried plenty of guns. Enough to defend themselves in a time of war or from pirates. Really, a lot of guns. I mean a whole lot of guns. Like a ridiculous amount of guns on board this Portuguese ship. Now, in the past, I've had some pushback on how I've characterized the Iberian kingdoms as empires in decline, and some of that is absolutely fair. Especially what I've said about Portugal in the past. Spain was in serious trouble. All of the really famous pirates we're going to be getting to before too long, you know, Blackbeard, Mary Read, they're all introduced because of a war, because Spain was in serious trouble. And Portugal was also in some decline. Now, they would do a better job pulling out of it in the decades to come. But here at the turn of the century, in the immediate aftermath of a lengthy and expensive war, they were in particularly poor shape. And that's why they had a ship so chock-full, and I mean full, of guns. See, they weren't great guns. We're not talking about shiny polished, top-of-the-line brass here. These were old guns, patched. Even a lot of them had those really heavy iron guns that England manufactured when they were in dire straits. None of them were reliable. Whenever you fired off a broadside, the gunners would light the fuses and then get back as far as possible and pray that the gun didn't explode on them. And if God really liked you, that gun might actually shoot. Here on the 8th of February, God must have been very happy with that Portuguese ship, because when they returned fire on the Charming Mary, all of the guns that they lit fired properly. None exploded, none backfired, they all shot their balls, which, you know, that's great, but here's the thing. When you fire off that many guns, so many that you have spares expecting some to fail... All of those guns aimed in one single direction, all at the fore of the ship, all at the same time, well, there's a lot of recoil. More recoil than the pilot expected, so much, in this case, that their ship actually started to turn around in the water. The ship was thrown off course, like a skater skidding to a stop. The Portuguese ship lost momentum. They lost the wind. They were just dead in the water. At which point, on board the Charming Mary, John Ireland hailed the vessel. He ordered her to strike sail and surrender. But the Portuguese refused. They tried to make a run for it, but while they were still reloading the guns and reorienting the sails, Robert Culliford got to use a tool that we have not yet seen on the Pirate History podcast. The mocha frigate was catching up quickly, But it became apparent to Culliford that they wouldn't get there in time. The Portuguese ship would get a volley, a broadside off, aimed directly at the Charming Mary, and they would get their sails in position before he could reach them. Ten years ago, this would have been a serious problem for him. But now, the pirates on board the Mocha fired off an expertly timed shot of their forechase guns. That's what Willick called them, forechase guns, but today we usually call them a bow chaser or just a chase gun. Those were guns that were mounted on or sometimes mounted inside the forecastle, you know, the forecastle at the front of a ship. Now, occasionally, these kind of guns were just improvised. The sailors would just roll their guns over and fire them at ships that they were chasing, but during the Nine Years' War... Chase guns became a fixture, especially on board English shipping. Especially, especially on English frigates. Ships that were fast enough to catch up to an enemy vessel, and then their chase cannons, especially if they were loaded with chain shot, could rip through the enemy's rigging with ease. And that's what they did here. The mainmast was torn in half, and the Portuguese ship, realizing she was beaten, surrendered. The Mocha men boarded the ship, but the Charming Mary, the faster of the two, gave chase to those other two Portuguese vessels, but it was fruitless. They were already long gone. However, the one ship they did have was a very rich prize. They weren't as rich as a Spanish treasure ship, but they were pretty close, You know, we haven't talked much about the Portuguese presence in Asia in the Indian Ocean at this point in time, but you may have noticed that there are a bunch of Portuguese ships roaming around out there. Despite giving up Bombay to England, Portugal still had a sizable presence in India, I think larger than England's at this point, to facilitate their trade around the Cape of Good Hope and into the Spice Islands. But beyond that, Since Portugal had a favorable relationship with England and had for some time, and since England had a favorable relationship with the Netherlands, they formed kind of a trifecta of, you might consider them, frenemies who sliced up Asia like a pie. At this point in their history, Portugal still had a preferential trade with the Dutch in Indonesia, And, this is the big one, they had outposts for trade in China and Japan. Eventually, of course, the Dutch would supplant them there, but that's way past the scope of our show. All of which is to say, though, that this Portuguese ship carried all of the riches of China. Opium, especially. As well as the riches of more southeastern Asia. Sugar, spices, you know, that's the kind of stuff every ship carried... But more than anything else, it carried a huge amount of silk. You know, there have been pirates we've talked about recently who have made their bones by a ship full of cotton. You know, calico was a rich prize. But imagine a ship, a huge ship, full of silk. A much, much more valuable textile. That alone would make an amazingly rich prize. But beyond that, on board this Portuguese vessel they found 100 pounds of gold. And I'm not saying 100 pounds sterling in gold. I mean 100 pounds by weight, imperial weight measures, in gold. Now, right now, as I'm recording this, the global economy is in a bit of turmoil. But as of July 18, 2022, a pound of gold is worth $20,488. Almost exactly the same in the euro, which are at a pretty close parity right now. And in pounds sterling, it's about 17,000. But when you've got 100 pounds of gold, that's 2,048,800 American dollars. And since there were just about 100 men divided between these two crews, each man got a pound of gold. So about $20,000 each which, of course, that doesn't count the silk or the opium or the spices or anything else, which combined probably equaled not quite as much, but almost as much as the gold, provided they could sell it. Now, if it were me in this situation, I would take the gold. I'd take the silk, I'd take the opium, and then I'd get, you know, the wine and the foodstuffs, but then I'd get out of there. It might be smart to leave a couple of pounds of gold to the captain and the other officers who could claim that we took all of it to facilitate their inability to chase us, but I'd be gone. Gone from the Indian Ocean, I mean. With all the foodstuffs that that ship carried, I'd be on my way to, I don't know, Nassau, probably. But that's not what Robert Culliford Cutlass... Culliford. That's not what he did. And sure, we should remember, he was not a man with absolute authority in this situation. Regardless, though, the pirates decided to stick around. They wanted to see if they could squeeze a bit more gold out of the Portuguese. If they're just carrying 100 pounds of gold out in the open like that, surely they've got some hidden compartment somewhere with a bit more. Their method for squeezing this hidden gold out of the Portuguese was torture. The first act of torture they committed, or at least the first that everyone talks about, is a bit obscure in the history. See, in a couple of years, when Captain Willock, the captive of the pirates, when he told his story, it was physically written down by a single man who was writing with, you know, an old-fashioned quill pen, very, very quickly, writing about as fast as Captain Willock could talk. And his handwriting wasn't always perfect. Some of the words are a little bit difficult to discern, so keep that in mind. The pirates on board this Portuguese vessel, they found a Catholic priest on board and decided to string him up by his hands. And then, as the story goes, this is where... Robert Culliford earned his nickname, Cutlass Culliford. With that priest strung up before him, Culliford pulled out his sword and sliced a piece of the priest off. But here's the thing, I don't know what piece of that priest he actually cut off. Most commonly, you'll see it recorded that Cutlass Culliford cut off the priest's beard. Which is actually kind of cool, right? Imagine you're strung up, on board a ship, terrified for your life. You've got this horrific, murderous pirate staring you dead in the eyes, and then he draws his sword. He's not blinking as he pulls his arm back. And then he swings right for your throat, at which point your beard just falls to the deck. That's a scene in a movie right there. But it might not have actually been the priest's beard that got cut off. In Pirates of the Eastern Seas, Charles Gray reads that word to mean part of his head rather than part of his beard. And I'm not really sure what that means. You know, did he cut off an ear, a nose, or maybe he scalped the priest? Whatever the case, it's worse than a bit of a trim of the whiskers. Still, though, There is an even worse possibility than that. In the English sailor-speak of the late 17th century, sailors called rope, you know, all of the rope used in maintaining a sailing vessel, they called it yard. You've heard of a yard arm, that beam that holds the rope to the mast? That's what that means, it's the arm for the rope. Yard is rope, rope is yard. But also, in the sailor-speak of the time, they used the word yard, which meant rope, to refer to a penis. And when you look at the manuscript, it does kind of look like it says, quote, One of the Padres they hoisted up with his hands, and with a cutlass cut some part of his yard off. Quote. I don't know what the pirates cut off, and I'm not even sure that this particular act of terror was perpetrated personally by Robert Culliford. But I like to believe that, here in February, Cutlass Culliford earned his name by cutting off a priest's bishop. Hello. I've been informed after the fact that that bit of terminology might be a bit too esoteric for some of you to get, that the terminology might not be as widespread as I had understood. When I use the term bishop, well, I'd like you to look at a chess set, and then pick up the piece called The Bishop and take a look at it, and think about what that looks like. That's what Cutlass Culliford and my imagination cut off. And now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. This was only the beginning, though. For the following four days, these pirates cut and burned and branded all of the priests and the officers on board. And at some point within those four days, they had to have realized that there wasn't any more gold on board, but the pirates didn't care. They had barrels and barrels of wine, they had pork to roast on board, and they had men to torture, the exact kind of men that they hated. Priests and officers, that lot. Exactly who English pirates most wanted to hurt. Except, you know, maybe the French. So these pirates ate and drank and maimed and mutilated for four days. They played this game where they dunked men in the water and then just... kinda saw how long it took them to die. The game was a betting game. They had to guess how long it would take someone to drown, and they used kind of... Price's right rules. Everyone around would bet, and whoever got closest with their guests without going over, that guy would win the pot. And when you're picturing this, remember that all of these pirates were playing dress-up. Every pirate on board had ransacked some officers' sea chests, so they were all wearing a you know, a big plumed hat or a pair of fine leather pumps, maybe knee-high boots. Some of them had fine coats or a silk shirt or jewelry or whatever else they found on board. Each of them was carrying around a big mug of wine and torturing people. It was a wild pirate party. Now, these two ships hung around in the region just off the southwest coast of India for a few more weeks. I suspect that they were hoping to run into those other two Portuguese ships, but They never found them. They did capture a few smaller prizes, though, mostly supply vessels carrying foodstuffs, things like that. Eventually, though, they realized they were pushing their luck. A fleet was very likely being sent out from Bombay or wherever any of the three powers would have wanted them dead as fast as possible. So, their fleet, all of their shares dealt out to each man, they split up. The mocha headed out to the Maldives, southwest of India, deep in the Indian Ocean. But the charming Mary sailed for St. Mary's Island. That was when they met up with the John and Rebecca at Adam Baldridge's outpost. That's when everything that we talked about last time happened. You know, the uprising of the Malagasy, the massacre at the brothel, and a tidal wave of blood. Which comes after what we talked about today. But I told these stories backwards, and maybe I should have told them in chronological order, but I wanted to wait until today to talk about Cutlass Culliford to give you a better picture of who he really was as a pirate, because next time, his story is going to crash headfirst into that of Captain William Kidd. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like the Explorers Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.